0: Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we're in the section that has the letters to the seven churches. And these are real historical churches from the first century that John sends these letters to. And Jesus is giving a message to each of these churches. They all, each one of these messages have something to teach us. So, we'll look this morning at the third letter. Last week, we saw the first two letters, the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna, and today we're just going to focus on one letter, and it's the letter to the church in Pergamum. Let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, and I'll read down to verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, "...the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword." I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, as we did with the other churches, we're going to begin this morning with a little tour of Pergamum because hopefully it's helpful to you uh, to see the places where these churches were. It reminds us that they're real historical churches in real cities. And sometimes if you're like me, um, you, you can kind of read these and you picture maybe a a small little village where this church is, and seeing some of these cities can remind us that's not at all the case. Um, Some of these were fairly large cities. So Pergamum is located here. It's the third city along this route that you would take if you were uh, kind of visiting all seven of these cities. And the ancient city of Pergamum sat on two levels. The Acropolis was the elevated part of the city. The word Acropolis means a city at the highest point or at the most elevated point. Literally, it's a city on a hill. It was quite common for ancient cities to have an Acropolis, a high point of their city where they would build most of their temples. The city of Pergamum actually had a system of pipes. This is a Roman aqueduct that you're seeing here, but it had a system of pipes that brought water in from a river about 25 miles away. And they actually had the technology that they had a pressurized pipe then that brought water up to the top of that Acropolis as well. So as you look at the Acropolis here, uh, this section kind of in the back up here was where the palaces were for royalty. And then um, continuing on around this edge was an area called the Heroon. and that was where shrines were built to worship or honor the kings of Pergamum. Uh, down here, you can see the theater of Pergamum. It's not as large as the ones in Ephesus or Smyrna. This one holds around 10 to 15,000 people. But this was the steepest theater in the ancient world. Um, if you can look online, you can find some pictures of people standing at the top of it and looking down, trying to avoid you know, getting dizzy. It's so steep. Now, down in front of the theater, you can see the theater up there, but running along in front of it, Um, You have down here the Dionysius or Dionysus temple that was accessed by walking along this terrace that kind of ran along the front of the theater for about 800 feet and it was just full of colonnades and stoa. So you're running along that um, at the bottom of the theater to get over to the Dionysus temple. And that's the temple there, what's left of it. Dionysus was the god of wine. And so worshiping at this temple meant drinking to excess believing that that united you somehow to the God. And the women of Pergamum were known to worship Dionysus by getting drunk in the hills outside the city and kind of running around in a frenzy and committing acts of immorality. And the worship of Dionysus got so wild, what the typical practices were, that Rome eventually outlawed it. Now, how immoral do you have to get for the Roman Empire to say, "Uh, that's a little too far. Back up on top of the Acropolis though, on the north end, this area over here was the Trajan temple. So that's a a temple that is built specifically to honor the emperor in Rome. So that's an example of the emperor cult worship. That's uh, the, the temple to Trajan right there. At the center of the Acropolis, up here above the theater, was the temple to Athena. I'm going to show you a picture that's actually taken from the other end. So as you look at this, where these crowds of people are, this right here, that cliff drops off and that's the theater over the edge, just so you can get your bearings there. There was the oldest temple in Pergamum. It dated to about four or five hundred years before John's time. And this temple was also home to Pergamum's famous library. So the library kind of sat here along the edge and around, kind of surrounded the uh, temple itself. And the library in Pergamum held at one point, 200,000 scrolls. It was second only to the library in Alexandria, Egypt. And supposedly, Mark Antony at one point raided the library and took the scrolls down to Alexandria as a gift for Cleopatra. Now, um, as you kind of come down this way, the, the hill continues to slope down. I just couldn't find any good pictures of it, but this area right over here would be the Zeus altar. And so that's the remains of where that altar sat. And it was a massive structure. It was 100 feet, more than 100 feet on each side. And what they did with this in recent years is they excavated everything they could find of it, took all the remains to Berlin and put it in a museum and reconstructed it. So they, they used all the original pieces, but filled in the gaps where they needed to. And so this is what that altar would have looked like. And um, it's you know a little over 100 feet across there at the front. The stairs are about 66 feet wide. And then as you go up to the top, you would go back in and it's as deep as it is wide as well. And so the altar itself was kind of up inside there. That's the Zeus altar continuing down the slope. If you kind of continued down farther, you would run into a marketplace. And then after the marketplace, as you continue sloping down to the city, there was a lower section of the Acropolis as well. And um, it's still on the hill, but it's on the slope heading down. That's where the gymnasium was. So that's the remains of the gymnasium there. The sanctuary of Hera was also there, and the sanctuary of Demeter. So that's what that picture is. Demeter was the grain god. Very popular God. Everybody likes to eat. And so those who came to worship Demeter were drenched in the blood of a bull in order to purge their sins away. And then there was another agora down at the bottom as well. Then once you come into the city that sits at the bottom of the hill, you had the Temple of Serapis or the Serapium. And so the remains of that are still there that people visit today. But the main thing that's down um, In the lower city that is helpful for us to understand is the Asclepian. This was the temple of the god Asclepius. It was more than a temple though. It's a healing center. So it's kind of like a temple and a hospital and a health spa all rolled into one. The Asclepian was accessed by this road called the Via Tecta And so this is kind of taken from the entrance to the Asclepian, looking back up, you can see the Acropolis up there in the distance. That's a little less than two miles from the Asclepian on up to the top there. And this is the remains of the Asclepian complex. So this whole thing was the complex that made up this hospital, temple, health, spa area. Okay. So just to get your bearings here, the Via Tecta comes in here. And so on up this way would have been the Acropolis. And as you came into the entrance to the Asclepium, off to the right was a library, a health library. So you could do research on whatever it was that was ailing you. Um, And when you came in to the left, there was a temple here to the god Asclepius. And many people would bring an offering to Asclepius that represented the part of the body that they were having trouble with. So if you were having trouble with your vision, you might bring a, a set of eyes and offer that to Asclepius. Or after you were healed, if you were healed, somebody brought this brass ear as a, a gift to honor Asclepius, supposedly for healing them. At one corner of the Asclepian was a theater. This one held about 3,500 people, and so that would, could be part of your... Um, your health regimen would be maybe relaxing by going to shows there or something like that. On the west side of the complex, so in the distance over here on this side, was where there were supposedly sacred water sources, and so you had springs that bubbled up there, and uh, that was the water that was used in the treatments that were given to people. But also over in that area was the sleeping building and so if you were going to the Asclepian for treatment, you would go and you would go to sleep there. You would be given hallucinogens before you went to, to sleep. And then the priests of Asclepius would visit you in the night dressed in the guise could be of Asclepius or it might be of Asclepius's daughters, Hygieia and Panacea. Hygieia, where we get our word hygiene, means health. Panacea means cure. And so a panacea is a cure-all. Those were the daughters of Asclepius, and so uh, the priest would come and visit the person who is, you know, hopefully in their eyes having some wild dreams, and then in the morning they would interpret those dreams, and that would prescribe the course of treatment for whatever illness they were suffering. And so, then once that treatment had been prescribed, you would come out to the middle, about where this tree is and there was an entrance there to a tunnel, and the tunnel runs all the way over to this round building here. So you would enter the tunnel, and then as you walked along the tunnel, there was water that was running from the sacred water sources over to the treatment center, along with lots of snakes. And so you were walking along with the water and the snakes over to the treatment center, and the treatment center, then you would sit in this, in this kind of covered, uh, room there's several chambers to it. it is about 300 feet in diameter and there's water and fountains running in there and there were snakes everywhere and the idea was that the touch of the snakes contributed to your healing so that was part of the the process of being healed by asclepius and the remains of some sacred pillars in the courtyard are still there and if you look close you can see the pictures there of the serpents, the snakes on the pillars. The symbol of Asclepius was a serpent wrapped around a staff. And if you know your Old Testament, you recognize that as kind of a satanic counterfeit of the bronze serpent that was raised in the wilderness when Israel uh, experienced the fiery serpents as a judgment from God. And as they looked on the bronze serpent, they were healed. And so this is kind of a, a counterfeit of that. And that symbol, then, of the the serpent wrapped around the staff is still in use today. This is the star of life, so it's a typical health symbol today, and it goes all the way back to Asclepius, and um, in fact, a very famous uh, physician from the ancient world, probably the most famous is Hippocrates, but after him, the most famous would be Galen, and Galen was from Pergamum and operated out of this facility. So hopefully that tour of Pergamum gives you some idea of the context for the letter into which Jesus, you know, the church that that Jesus sends this letter to. As we um, dig into the letter itself, I think a helpful lens for us to understand the message of this letter is discernment. Discernment. So this church is called to overcome, as are all the churches, but they're specifically called to discernment. It's a church that has been faithful in many ways, but it's lacking in discernment. They're tolerating things they should not tolerate. And I want to look at this in four parts. And here's the first one, discernment and fidelity, faithfulness. Jesus says that this church has held fast his name and they did not deny the faith. Their circumstances got pretty bad, bad enough that Antipas, was martyred for his faith. And even then, they did not deny the faith. So Jesus notes that they live where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. We'll come back to that in a little bit. We don't know a whole lot about Antipas. Tradition says that he was the pastor of the church here and that he was killed for his faith. Supposedly, he was killed in a device known as a brazen bull, brazen bull was a torture device that was used to entertain the crowds, so the person was put literally inside a metal bull, and then a fire was lit under it <clears throat> to roast the person inside, and there were a system of pipes that would transform the screams of the individual into sounds that sounded like a bellowing bull, and so the crowds would sit outside and hear this, and that was entertainment for them. Um, and tradition says that's how Antipas died. Now, the name Antipas is short for Antipater, P A T E R. And a few, I know we have some Latin students here. Pater means father, Antipas means in the place of the father. So, Antipas is one who stands in the place of the father, a representative of the father. Can you think of another representative of the father who was killed? Jesus. I mean, Antipas is following in the footsteps of Jesus. We say our mission as a church is discovering what it means to follow Jesus. Well, for Antipas, what it meant was losing his life for his faith. And it sounds like for the church in Pergamum, that's a kind of constant threat for them as well. But even knowing that this kind of danger was a possibility, these Christians held fast. They were faithful and Jesus praises them for it question for us as we read this is, am I prepared to be faithful? Biblical Christianity is not as accepted as it was in our culture. The enemies of Christ are more vocal, more numerous, more well received today. Their opposition to us is getting stronger. Are you prepared to be faithful? And if you want to know the answer to that question, ask yourself how you respond when you're faced with a decision about whether to stand up for biblical truth in simple everyday conversations that you already have with your neighbors and your boss and your coworkers and others. A second thing that we need to note from this letter is discernment and compromise. Discernment and compromise. Jesus says that while this church has held fast to the faith, they're tolerating things they should not tolerate. Specifically, they're tolerating those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And he also mentions the Nicolaitans. We talked about them last week. Essentially, they're the same issue as the Balaamites, so I won't go into detail about them again. Now, I don't think there was a group in the church saying, we are followers of Balaam. That would not be a popular group um, in the church. But I think this is a way of describing a group in the church that is teaching something that has the same problem, the same effect as Balaam's influence on Israel. So to understand this, we have to go back to the story of Balaam in the Old Testament. Now it's spread out over quite a few chapters in the book of Numbers. So I'll summarize some of it and we'll just look at a few parts specifically this morning. So go ahead and turn to Numbers 31. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of summarize the story of Balaam up to this point. In Numbers 20, we read that Israel's in the wilderness and they're looking for a way to get to the promised land, but the kings of the lands in between, they don't want to let Israel come into their land because they're afraid of them. In Numbers 21, we have the story of Israel complaining and God sending the fiery serpents and the making of the bronze serpent on the pole. So the Balaam story happens right after that. So we're right in that context, okay? Israel looked at the serpent on the pole and they were healed. Well, in Numbers 22, Balak, king of Moab, summons Balaam, the prophet, to come curse the Israelites. The Moabites and the Midianites are afraid of the Israelites. But God told Balaam to go with the men, but to only say what God told him to say. So Balaam saddles a donkey and he goes with the men, but he's unable to curse the Israelites. God prevents him from doing it. And over and over instead, he blesses the Israelites. And Balak keeps going, that's not what I want you to do. Also in this chapter, Numbers 22, Balaam's donkey that he's riding talks to him. The donkey stops and won't go any further because the donkey is allowed to see the angel of the Lord standing there blocking the path. Balaam doesn't see the angel and he gets angry with the donkey and so he's yelling at his donkey. Eventually though, God opens Balaam's eyes so that he too sees the angel standing there with the sword and Balaam sees that God is the one orchestrating these events. In Numbers 23 and 24, Balaam just continues blessing Israel and in one of his oracles, we have the well-known verse in chapter 24, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So that's a promise about the Messiah as king. And then in chapter 25, we find the men of Israel committing immorality with the daughters of Moab and Midian. And because of their sin, God sends a plague on them. One man that we're told about has taken a woman from Midian right in front of his family and the sight, in the sight of Moses and the whole congregation, and so Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, uh, sees this, and he takes a spear and runs them both through with the spear, and that puts an end to the plague, but not until twenty-four thousand people died. So when we jump to Numbers thirty-one, here we have the Israelites going to war against the Midianites and killing their kings and taking many of them captive. So look with me at Numbers 31 and verse 8. Okay, verse 8. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Okay, so just tuck that away in your mind. And then, um, you know, Balaam's killed with the sword. The sword represents justice. God's having Moses and the Israelites carry out that justice. Jump down to verses 15 and 16. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So here we have the explanation of what happened to bring down the Israelites. Balaam was unable to curse the Israelites. God prevented him from doing that. So instead, he gave Balak the advice of having the Moabite and Midianite women seduce the men of Israel. Now, let's go back to chapter 25 to see specifically what happened. So just turn back a couple of pages to Numbers 25. And I'm just going to read the first three verses, Numbers 25, starting in verse 1. While Israel lived at Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So the Israelites mixed the worship of Yahweh with the gods of the Moabites and the Midianites. And they're eating meals in the context of worship of these gods. And it says that they tied themselves to Baal. In other words, this is compromise. This is syncretism. This is mixing pagan ungodly practices with service to Yahweh. And the results are disastrous. Okay, so now come back in your mind to Pergamum. What's happening here? Well, there are some in the church in Pergamum who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What's the teaching of Balaam? Well, it's go ahead and mix in. Go ahead and adopt the practices of these foreigners, these pagans. You can still worship God and add their worship to it. It's okay to participate in the pagan temple rituals because we know their gods aren't real. So the meat that was sacrificed to idols is just meat. There's nothing special about it. So you can go to the temple feast and participate because you know those gods aren't real and your heart is given to Jesus. But Jesus says no. What does it mean to follow Jesus in Pergamum? It means not participating in the pagan rituals. It means being separate, being holy. The immorality on display in these temple feasts must be avoided. Remember what Paul told the church in Corinth. We looked at that a couple of years ago as we walked through 1 Corinthians. If you're buying meat in the market and that meat was possibly sacrificed to idols, don't worry about it. It's just meat. Okay? That was the message that Paul gave them. The idols aren't real. But if you're invited to go to the temple for a meal, don't go. It's the same meat. So what's the difference? Well, you can't participate in the temple meal without honoring that false god. That's what Balaam drew the Israelites into. They were were sharing these religious worship meals with the Moabites and the Midianites. And in Pergamum, like other cities in the Roman empire, your social status would depend on your willingness to participate, to honor the gods, to worship the emperor. You wanna be a member of the trade guild? Participate in the feasts, honor the gods, worship the emperor. But Jesus tells them this is going to have the same effect as it did on Israel. So don't compromise, be discerning, recognize the immorality recognize the danger, and remain faithful even if it costs you. What would compromise with the world look like for the church today? What would gain you social status in the eyes of the world? Well, the entire social justice movement, for one thing. So how many jump, ch- churches have jumped on the bandwagon of racial reconciliation, Well, let me be clear, there's no room for racism in the church. We're all one in Christ, Jew or Greek, slave or free. But the social justice movement has assumptions and goals that are unbiblical. But many in the church are not concerned with that because they're willing to take the the teaching that we're all one in Christ and the social justice movement that's going on in our world and merge the two. That's syncretism. It's syncretism. If we don't appear to be doing anything to support social justice, then the world will hate us. And Jesus says, of course they will. They hated me too. What about something as simple as questioning the COVID narrative of the government? There's many churches happy to compromise there. There was an article earlier this week that kind of detailed how a number of big names in evangelicalism essentially became the mouthpiece for the NIH. Spreading the message that the government wanted everyone to hear about COVID and how to handle it. That's not the role of the church. It has the appearance of love, of caring. And so churches do that kind of thing in order to maintain status in the eyes of the world. But we're to be people of truth, and there are false assumptions at work there. Real, actual truth is what we are supposed to be clinging to, not an approved narrative. And churches, many churches, have ceded authority to the government that doesn't belong to it. See, we, as a church, we do not have the right to allow the government to rule the church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And he has given spheres of authority to different institutions. And so the civil government has a realm that they're in charge of. And the church has a realm that they're in charge of. And both are accountable to Jesus It's not like there's one truth for one and another truth for another. It's all Jesus's. It all belongs to him. But he set up various authorities and we're not to step over the bounds of authority into someone else's authority because no human individual or institution should be totalitarian. No, No human institution or individual should be ultimate. And so we have divided authority, but all under the authority of Jesus. And the authority that he's given to the church is not up for grabs. We may not give it to the state. We're not permitted to do that by Jesus. That would be compromise. The compromise here in Pergamum may not also just be with the Romans, it may also be with the Jews. There may be some in the church who are saying, well, let's go along with the Jewish way of worship. They have an exemption from Rome And if we worship with them, we'll be safe. But that would also be compromise. When we get down to Revelation 17, we will see the harlot Babylon, which represents Jerusalem, riding on a beast with seven heads, which represents Rome. In other words, Rome is enabling the Jews to carry out their harlotry. And the Christians may be tempted to compromise with either one in order to find safety from the threat of persecution. But Jesus says, don't compromise. A third area is discernment and judgment. Judgment. If they don't repent of this sin of tolerating the teaching of Balaam, of syncretism, of compromise, Jesus says he will come and make war against them with the sword of his mouth. Remember, Jesus introduces himself in this letter as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Pergamum was, for a time, the capital city of the uh, Asian province. The governor in Pergamum had what was called the ius gladii. Now, again, we've got some Latin students here. So ius is the short version of justitia, justice, gladii. Anyone know what, what, what's that? Can you translate that? Sword, right. So it's the, the justice of the sword or the right of the sword, the righteousness of the sword. In other words, the governor had the right to pass judgment and hand out the death penalty. But Jesus says that he's the one who has the sword. The sword represents judgment and the power to execute that judgment. In the Balaam story, the angel of the Lord appeared holding a sword. Now, who's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? It's Jesus, okay? There he has the sword. Balaam himself, do you remember when we read it in Numbers 31, how was Balaam killed by the Israelites? With the sword. The sword represents justice. see, the the imagery here is, is kind of woven through the whole story. In Romans 13, verse 4, Paul writes that the governing authority, the civil governing authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In other words, God delegates the power of the sword, and that power is to be used by his representative in a way that honors him it should reflect his justice, not man-made justice. So for the Christians in Pergamum who have seen the power of the sword used by the government to oppose and persecute the Christians, like Antipas, Jesus wants them to know that he's the one who actually has the power of the sword. If they are wavering between obeying Jesus and obeying the governing authorities, Jesus reminds them who's really in charge. The fact that Jesus has the sword in his mouth means that his word brings judgment. He's the judge who will pass sentence and will execute justice. There's another image there of power and authority and judgment in this letter too, though. Jesus says that this church dwells where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. A throne is a symbol of power and authority and judgment. And there are a number of things that this could mean. One possibility is the Asclepian. Its symbol is the serpent, and Satan is the serpent in the garden who deceived Adam and Eve. It's also possible that it's talking about the emperor cult, like the Trajan temple or the heroine, the emperors and the kings elevated themselves to the level of a god and claimed authority that didn't belong to them. Well, that's satanic. Satan wanted to be like God and take his place. Another possibility is the Zeus altar, uh, the big altar that I showed you the picture of in the museum. That altar is basically shaped like a massive throne Zeus was the highest of the gods. So, this is another example of something that was elevated to the place of God Himself. Yet another possibility is the Jewish synagogue. We already saw in the letter to Smyrna that the Jewish synagogue was called a synagogue of Satan. Many of the times in the Gospels, when Jesus encounters a demon possessed individual, it's in the synagogue that it happens. In rejecting Jesus, the Jews were following their father, the devil. So that could be Satan's throne. It's also possible that it has reference to the wilderness. When Jesus faced off with Satan, where was it? It was in the wilderness. That's where Satan was dwelling. When Balaam advised Balak to tempt the Israelites with immorality, where was it? It was in the wilderness. So all of these are possibilities. And probably we can't press the image too specifically, But in general, all those forces that rise up in opposition to God, those pretended authorities who claim for themselves power and judgment that belongs to God, those are satanic. We have an overreaching government today that's becoming more tyrannical. It takes for itself authority that does not belong to it. That is satanic. The church is called to loyalty to Jesus, When the powers of this world oppose Jesus, the church is not to compromise or go along with them or take a posture of listening or any other syncretistic nonsense. We are Jesus's people. We belong to him in every aspect of our being. We're representatives of the kingdom of God. And we seek to live in every arena of life in a way that shows submission to him. The last thing that I want you to see is discernment and blessing. Discernment and blessing. Jesus tells this church that if they overcome, if they conquer, they will receive the hidden manna and the white stone with a new name. If they live in discernment, not tolerating compromise and syncretism, they will receive these blessings. The hidden manna refers to the jar of manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. It was a reminder of the provision of God for the Israelites in the wilderness. So if God could provide for their needs in the wilderness, then he can provide for them in the spiritual wilderness of Pergamum. They don't need to go to the grain God, Demeter, in order to have what they need. God will provide for their needs. But the manna was also a symbol, a traditional Jewish symbol of the messianic age, the age when Messiah would come and reign because it was a a blessing from heaven. And so it was the idea that when Messiah came, those who followed him would be blessed, abundant blessings. And for those in Pergamum who overcome through discernment, they will experience the blessings that come with allegiance to the Messiah, Jesus. The white stone, it's another symbol that we're not entirely sure what it means. Some think it had to do with a stone that would serve as an admission ticket to a feast, like the temple feasts. And if that's the case, then what Jesus has in mind is that while they're losing access because of their faith to the temple feasts, they are gaining access to something greater, fellowship with him and with the Father and ultimately to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Others think that Jesus has in mind the white monuments that kind of were all over the place in Pergamum, The ground in that acropolis were dark granite, and so the white stone monuments kind of stand out against that. For example, in the Asclepian, there are stones with the names of the people who've been healed. If that's what Jesus had in mind, then he was telling them that foregoing the honor of the world is nothing compared with being honored by God for their faithfulness. But I think the most likely meaning actually has to do with the high priest in the Old Testament. Much of the imagery in this letter is drawn from Israel's time in the wilderness. And it's while they're in the wilderness that the instructions are given to them for what the high priest was supposed to wear. And Exodus 28 tells us the high priest had two stones on his shoulders with the names of the sons of Israel on them. So there's six on one and six on the other. But then he had also a breastplate. And on that breastplate, there were 12 stones in four rows of three. And each individual stone was uh, one of the, the names of the tribes of Israel. And there are these gleaming jewels. Well, the word white here in Revelation, the white stone, it does mean white, but it can also mean gleaming or sparkling These 12 gleaming stones on the high priest's breastplate each had a name on them. So that's that's a possibility as well. And, And I want you to just kind of catch how the imagery runs through the book of Revelation. So if you're in Revelation 2, just turn back over to Revelation 21, right near the end of the book. Revelation 21. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14. We're given a description of the new heavens and new earth and then we have a description of the new Jerusalem. And um, you'll see as we read this, just remember, it's, I'm going to show you the bride and then when John looks, he sees the city. So the bride is the city. So the new Jerusalem coming down is the bride and the bride of Christ is the church. So what we're seeing in the city is a representation of the people of God. All right. So starting in verse 9, It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you have the city that has the appearance of jewels gleaming but it also is inscribed with the names that represent the people of God. Now what I find very interesting is the description in Exodus 28 of the purpose of the high priest having these names on the breastplate. Exodus 28 verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart, when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So we've already seen that Jesus has judgment in mind in this letter. And the whole book of Revelation is him coming in judgment, but specifically in this letter, it's the word of his mouth, the sword. The sword represents judgment, it's his word is judgment. But here, the high priest's breastplate is the breastpiece of judgment. And when he goes into the holy place, he goes to bring these names to regular remembrance before the Lord. So if this is what Jesus has in mind in the letter to Pergamum, then he's assuring the church in Pergamum that if they overcome, if they're discerning and obedient, then his judgment on them will be favorable. They will not be forgotten or abandoned, but they will be in regular remembrance before the Lord. The ultimate king knows their name and remembers them with his favor. So Jesus is the one with the sword. He holds the authority to judge and his words give perfect judgment. The church dwells where Satan has his throne, right in the heart of opposition to Jesus but they've been faithful, like Antipas, even when their very lives were on the line. But they're lacking in discernment. They're tolerating a teaching in the church that is promoting compromise. And Jesus tells them they must not compromise. They must not try to meet the world halfway. They must not mix the world's ideas into the worship of God. Their entire lives, every part of them, is to be given over completely to living God's way. So they must repent of this error. And if they do, if they conquer through discernment, if they overcome this challenge to their obedience, they will receive the blessing of God. And that message is for us too. We are to be faithful and discerning. We're not to give in to the temptation to compromise with the world. We're not to seek the world's favor. And we must serve Jesus with our whole heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this message to the church in Pergamum. It is at times a difficult thing when we feel the pull of the world and we want the approval of the world and we want to have uh, every appearance of, of um, being loving and, and of being um, concerned with the things the world is concerned with. But you call us to faithfulness to you above all else. Our priorities are to be your priorities. And what our world really needs is not for us to compromise and to become like them, What our world needs is to hear the message of the truth of the gospel in an unashamed, not watered down way, because that is the message that will bring true healing. That is the message that will bring salvation. Every other message out there that says this is the solution, this is what will help, those are false messages. Help us to be discerning people who do not compromise with the world. To be faithful like Antipas, even when there's danger and there's opposition. But help us to be discerning. Help us to not compromise our faith. May our allegiance be to you and to you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.